Chapter eighteen of the Fortunate Youth This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Sonali Punja The Fortunate Youth by William John Locke Chapter eighteen In the tense silence of the few moments of waiting paul passed from the boy to whom the earth had been a fairyland to the man grappling with great realities in those few moments he lived through his past life and faced an adumbration of the future the door was thrown open and the princess appeared smiling happy a black ostrich feather in her hat and a sable stole hanging loose from her shoulders a great radiant lady behind her came the colonel and ursula winwood paul bent over the princess's outstretched hand a thousand pardons for keeping you waiting i did not know you had come i was engaged with my friends may i have the honour of presenting them princess this is mr silas finn the managing director of fish palaces limited these are two very dear friends miss seddon mr simmons Miss Winwood, Colonel Winwood, may I? He waved an introductory hand. The princess bowed. Then, struck by their unsmiling faces and by Paul's strange manner, turned to him quickly. Kiskila. He pushed a chair. She sat down. Ursula Winwood sat in Paul's writing chair. The others remained standing. Mr. Finn called to inform me that he had been adopted as the liberal candidate for Hickney Heath. My felicitations, said the princess. Silas bowed to her gravely and addressed Colonel Winwood. We have been, sir, Mr. Savelli and I, for some time on terms of personal friendship in the constituency. I see, I see, replied the colonel, though he was somewhat puzzled very polite and friendly i'm sure mr finn also urges me to withdraw my candidature said paul the princess gave a little incredulous laugh ursula winwood rose and with a quick protective step drew nearer paul colonel winwood frowned withdraw in heaven's name why silas finn tugged at his black and white street beard and looked at his son need we go into it again there are religious reasons which perhaps madame silas addressed the princess you might misunderstand mr savelli possibly thinks i'm a fanatic i can't help it i have warned him that is enough good-bye mr savelli he held out his hand but paul did not take it you forget mr finn that I asked you to stay. He clutched the sides of his jacket till his knuckles grew white, and he set his teeth. Mr. Finn has another reason for wishing me not to oppose him. The reason you need never give, cried Silas in a loud voice and starting forward. You know that I make no claims whatsoever. I know that, said Paul coldly, but I am going to give it all the same. He paused, 
held up his hand and looked at the princess. Mr. Silas Finn happens to be my father. Good God! gasped the colonel after a flash of silence. The princess caught a quick breath and sat erect in her chair. Vertro père, Paul? Yes, princess. Until half an hour ago I did not know it. Never in my life did I know that I had a father living. My friends there can bear witness that what I say is true. But Paul, dear, said Miss Winwood, laying her kind fingers on his arm and searching his face, you told us that your parents were dead and that they were Italians. I lied, replied Paul calmly. But I honestly believed the woman who was my mother not to be my mother. And I had never heard of my father. I had to account for myself to you. Your delicacy, Miss Winwood, enabled me to invent as little as possible. But your name, Savelli? I took it when I went on the stage. I had a few years obscure and unsuccessful struggle. You will remember I came to you starving and penniless. The princess grew white, and her delicate nostrils quivered. E, monsieur, votre père, she checked herself. And your father? What do you say he is? Paul motioned to Silas to speak. I, madame, said the latter, am a self-made man, and by the establishment of fried fish shops all over London and the great provincial towns have, by the grace of God, amassed a considerable fortune. Fried fish? said the princess in a queer voice. Silas looked at her out of his melancholy and unhumorous eyes. Yes, madame. I have also learned, said Paul, that my grandmother was a Sicilian who played the street organ. Hence my Italian blood. Jane, standing by the door with Barney Bill, most agonized of old men, wholly nervous, twisting with gnarled fingers the broken rim of his hard-felt hat, turned aside so that no one but Bill should see a sudden gush of tears, for she had realized how drab and unimportant she was in the presence of the great and radiant lady. Also how the great and radiant lady was the godsend mate for Paul, never so great a man as now, when he was cutting out his heart for truth's sake. I should like to tell you what my life has been, continued Paul, in the presence of those who know it already. That's why I asked them to stay. Until an hour ago I lived in dreams. In my own fashion, I was an honest man. But now I've got this knowledge of my origin. The dreams are swept away, and I stand naked to myself. If I left you, Miss Winwood and Colonel Winwood, who have been so good to me, and Her Highness, who has deigned to honour me with her friendship in a moment's doubt as to my antecedents, I should be an impostor. No, no, my boy, said Colonel Winwood, who was standing with his hands deep in trouser pockets and his head bent, staring at the carpet. No words like that in this house. Besides, why should we want to go into all this? Here the Englishman's detestation of unpleasant explanations. Ursula Winwood supported him. 
Yes, why? she asked. But it would be very interesting, said the princess slowly, cutting her words. Paul met her eyes, but she had hardened, and saw beneath them pain and anger and wounded pride and repulsion. For a second he allowed an agonized appeal to flash through his. He knew that he was deliberately killing the love in her heart. He felt the monstrous cruelty of it. A momentary doubt shook him. Was he justified? A short while ago she had entered the room, her face alight with love. Now her face was as stern and cold as his own. Had he the right to use the knife like this? Then certainty came. It had to be. The swifter, the better. She, of all human beings, must no longer be deceived. Before her, at supreme cost, he must stand clean. It is not very interesting, said he, and it soon told. I was a ragged boy in a slum in a Lancashire town. I slept on sacking in a scullery and very seldom had enough to eat. The woman whom I didn't think was my mother ill-treated me. I gather now that she hated me, because she hated my father. She deserted him when I was a year old and disappeared. She never spoke of him. I don't know exactly how old I am. I chose a birthday at random. As a child, I worked in a factory. You know what child labor in factories was some years ago. I might have been there still if my dear old friend there hadn't helped me when I was thirteen to run away. He used to go through the country in a van selling mats and chairs. He brought me to London and found me a lodging with Miss Seddon's mother. So Miss Seddon and I were children together. I became an artist's model. When I grew too old for that to be a dignified occupation, I went on the stage. Then one day, starving and delirious, I stumbled through the gates of Drainscourt and fell at Miss Winwood's feet. That's all. Since we have begun, we may as well finish and get it over, said Colonel Winwood, still with bent head, but looking at Paul from beneath his eyebrows. When and how did you come across this gentleman, who you say is your father? Paul told the story in a few words. And now that you have heard everything, said he, would you think me justified in withdrawing my candidature? Certainly not, said the colonel. You've got your duty to the party. And you, Miss Winwood? Can you ask? You have your duty to the country. And you, Princess? She met his challenging eyes and rose in a stately fashion. I am not equal to these complications of English politics, Mr. Savelli, she said. She held herself very erect, but her lips trembled and tears were very near her eyes. She turned to Miss Winwood and held out her hand. I'm afraid we must postpone our discussion of the forlorn widows. It's getting late. Au revoir, Colonel Winwood. I will see you to your carriage. On the threshold she turned, included Paul in a vague bow to the company, and passed through the door which Colonel Winwood held open. Paul watched her until she disappeared, disappeared haughtily out of his life, taking his living heart with her, 
leaving him with a stone very heavy, very cold, dead. And he was smitten as with a great darkness. He remained quite still for a few moments after the door had closed. Then, with a sudden jerk, he drew himself up. Mr. Finn, said he, as I have told you, I address my first meeting tonight. I am going to make public the fact that I am your son. Silas put his hand to his head and looked at him wildly. No, no, he muttered hoarsely. No. I see no reason, said Miss Winwood gently. I see every reason, said Paul. I must live in the light now, the truth or nothing. Then obey your conscience, Paul, she answered. But Silas came forward with his outstretched hand. You can't do it. You can't do it, I tell you. It's impossible. Why? He replied in an odd voice and with a glance at Miss Winwood. I must tell you afterwards. I will leave you, she said. Mr. Finn, she shook hands with him. I hope you're proud of your son. And then she shook hands with Jane and Barney Bill. I'm glad to meet such old friends of Paul. And to Paul, as he held the door open, she said, her clear, kind eyes full on him, Remember, we want men in England. Thank God we've got women, said he, with lips from which he could not keep a sudden quiver. He closed the door and came up to his father, standing on the hearth rug. And now, why shouldn't I speak? Why shouldn't I be an honest man instead of an impostor? Out of pity for me, my son. Pity? Why? What harm would it do to you? There's nothing dishonorable in father and son fighting an election. He laughed without mirth. It's what some people would call sporting. As for me, personally, I don't see why you should be ashamed of owning me. My record is clean enough. But mine isn't, Paul, said Silas mournfully. For the first time, Paul bowed his head. I am sorry, said he. I forgot. Then he raised it again. But that's all over and buried in the past. It may be unburied. How? Don't you see? cried Jane. Even I can. If you spring your relationship upon the public, it will create an enormous sensation. It will set the place on fire with curiosity. They will dig up everything they can about you, everything they can about him. Oh, Paul, don't you see? It's up again a man, Sonny, said Barney Bill, limping towards them. It's up again a candidate, you understand. Him not being a Finian or an Irish patriot. That he's been in jail. Penal servitude ain't a nice state of life to be reminded of, Sonny. Whereas if you leaves things as they is, nobody's going to ask no questions. That's my point, said Silas Finn. Paul looked from one to another, darkly. In a kind of dull, fierce passion, he had made up his mind to clear himself before the world to rend to tatters his garments of romance, to snap his fingers at the stars and destiny and such-like deluding toys,
to stand as young ajax defying the thunderbolts here came the first check if they found out as how he had done time they'd find out why said bill cocking his head earnestly as paul engaged in sombre thought made no reply silas turned away his hands uplifted in supplication and prayed aloud he had sinned in giving way to his anger he prostrated himself before the divine vengeance if this was his apportioned punishment might god give him meekness and strength to bear it the tremulous crying voice the rapt fanatical face and the beseeching attitude struck a bizarre note in the comfortable and worldly room supported on either side by jane helpless and anxious and barney bill crooked wrinkled with his close-cropped white hair and little liquid diamond eyes still nervously tearing his hat brim he looked almost grotesque to paul he seemed less a man than the creation of another planet with unknown and incalculable instincts and impulses who had come to earth and with foolish hand had wiped out the meaning of existence yet he felt no resentment but rather a very pity for the stranger blundering through an unsympathetic world as soon as there came a pause in the prayer he said not ungently the almighty is not going to use me as an instrument to punish you if i can help it i quite appreciate your point i'll say nothing barnibal jerked his thumb towards the chair where the princess had been sitting she won't give it away paul smiled sadly no old man she'll keep it to herself that marked the end of the interview paul accompanied the three downstairs i meant to act for the best paul said silas piteously on parting tell me that i haven't made you my enemy god forbid said paul he went slowly up to his room again and threw himself in his writing chair his eye fell upon the notes on the sheet of foolscap the radical candidate having been chosen they were no longer relevant to his speech he crumpled up the paper and threw it into the waste paper basket his speech he held his head in both hands a couple of hours hence he would be addressing a vast audience the center of the hopes of thousands of his fellow countrymen the thought beat upon his brain he had had the common nightmare of standing with conductor's baton in front of a mighty orchestra and being paralyzed by sense of impotence no less a nightmare was his present position a couple of hours ago he was a thrill with confidence and joy of battle but then he was a different man the morning stars the stars of his destiny sang together in the ever deepening glamour of the vision splendid he was entering into the lists of camelot to fight for his princess he was the mysterious knight parented in a fairy far avilion the fortunate youth the awakener of england now he was but a base-born young man who had attained a high position by false pretenses an ordinary adventurer with a glib tongue 
a self-educated self-seeking commonplace fellow at least so he saw himself in his princess's eyes and he had meant that she should thus behold him no longer was he entering lists to fight for her for what hopeless purpose was he entering them to awaken england the awakener must have his heart full of dreams and visions and glamour and joy and throbbing life and in his heart there was death he drew out the little cornelian talisman at the end of his watch chain and looked at it bitterly it was but a mocking symbol of illusion he unhooked it and laid it on the table he would carry it about with him no longer he would throw it away ursula winwood quietly entered the room you must come down and have something to eat before the meeting paul rose i don't want anything thank you miss winwood but james and i do so come and join us are you coming to the meeting he asked in surprise of course she lifted her eyebrows why not after what you have heard all the more reason for us to go she smiled as she had smiled on that memorable evening six years ago when she had stood with the horrible pawn ticket in her hand james has to support the party i have to support you james will do the same as i in a day or two just give him time his mind doesn't work very quickly not as quickly as a woman's come she said when we have a breathing space you can tell me all about it but in the meantime i'm pretty sure i understand how can you he asked wearily you have other traditions i don't know about traditions but i don't give my love and take it away again i set rather too much value on it i understand because i love you others with the same tradition can't understand i'm not proposing to marry you she said bluntly that makes a difference it does said he meeting her eyes unflinchingly if you weren't a brave man i shouldn't say such a thing to you anyhow i understand you're the last man in the world who should take me for a fool my god said paul in a choky voice what can i do to thank you win the election you are still my dearest lady my very very dearest lady said he her shrewd eyes fell upon the cornelian heart she picked it up and held it out to him on her plump palm why have you taken this off your watch chain it is a false god said he it is the first thing you asked for when you recovered from your illness you said you had kept it since you were a tiny boy see i remember you set great value on it then i believed in it said paul and now you don't but a woman gave it to you yes said paul wondering in his masculine way how the deuce she knew that i was a brat of eleven then keep it put it on your chain again i'm sure it's a true little god take it back to please me as there was nothing from lapping up isel to killing a crocodile that paul would not have done in the fullness of his wondering gratitude for his dearest lady 
he meekly attached the heart to his chain and put it in his pocket. I must tell you, said he, that the lady, she seemed a goddess to me then, chose me as her champion in a race, a race of urchins at a Sunday school treat, and I didn't win. But she gave me the Cornelian heart as a prize. But as my champion, you will win, said Miss Winwood. My dear boy, she said, and her eyes grew very tender as she laid her hand on the young man's arm. Believe what an old woman is telling you is true. Don't throw away any little shred of beauty you've ever had in your life. The beautiful things are really the true ones, though they may seem to be illusions. Without the trinket or what it stood for, would you be here now? I don't know, replied Paul. I might have taken a more honest road to get here. We took you to ourselves as a bright human being, Paul, not for what you might or might not have been. By the way, what have you decided as regards to making public the fact of your relationship? My father, for his own reasons, has urged me not to do so. Miss Winwood drew a long breath. I'm glad to hear it, she said. So Paul comforted by one woman's amazing loyalty, went out that evening and addressed his great meeting. But the roar of applause that welcomed him echoed through void spaces of his being. He felt neither thrill nor fear. The speech prepared by the fortunate youth was delivered by a stranger to it, glowing and dancing eloquence. The words came trippingly enough, but the informing spirit was gone. Those in the audience, familiar with the magic of his smile, were disappointed. The soundness of his policy satisfied the hard-headed, but he made no appeal to the imaginative. If his speech did not fall flat, it was not the clarion voice that his supporters had anticipated. They whispered together with depressed head-shakings. Their man was not informed. He was nervous. What he said was right enough, but his utterance lacked fire. It carried conviction to those already convinced. But it could make no proselytes. Had they been mistaken in their choice? Too young a man. Hadn't he bitten off a hunk greater than he could chew? So the inner ring of local politicians. An election audience, however, brings its own enthusiasms, and it must be a very dull dog indeed who damps their ardour. They cheered prodigiously when Paul sat down, and a crowd of zealots waiting outside the building cheered him again as he drove off. But Paul knew that he had been a failure. He had delivered another man's speech. Tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after that, and even afterwards, if he held to the political game, he would have to speak in his own new person. What kind of a person would the new Paul be? He drove back almost in silence with the colonel and Miss Winwood, vainly seeking to solve the problem. The foundations of his life had been swept away. His foot rested on nothing solid save his own manhood. That no shock should break down. He would fight. He would win the election. He set his lips in grim determination. 
if life held no higher meaning it at least offered this immediate object for existence besides he owed the most strenuous effort of his soul to the devoted and loyal woman whose face he saw dimly opposite afterwards come what might the truth at any rate magna est veritas et privilebi pravalebi these were prava oaths and valorous protestations but when their light supper was over and colonel winwood had retired ursula winwood lingered in the dining-room her heart aching for the boy who looked so stern and haggard she came behind him and touched his hair poor boy she murmured and then paul he was very young barely thirty broke down as perhaps she meant that he should and elbow sprawling amid the disarray of the meal poured out all the desolation of his soul and for the first time cried out in anguish for the woman he had lost so as love lay a bleeding mortally pierced ursula winwood wept unaccustomed tears and with tender fingers strove to staunch the wound end of chapter eighteen